Amen. Take a Bible, find Colossians chapter 3. That's our passage this morning. There is an outline in the bulletin where you can follow along with the message. Colossians chapter 3. Pastorally speaking, I hope somebody stole your seat this morning from the other service. I hope you had to move to a new spot. And uh, maybe you can make a new friend as we go down the hall for lunch in a little bit. Uh, be mindful, Emmanuel people, of those who need somebody to sit with them. Don't let anybody sit alone or eat lunch alone. Colossians 3. If you've been here the last several months, you know that Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's a book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul talks about Jesus as preeminent as supreme, as first place in all of the cosmos. In the early part of this book, Jesus is described as Lord. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of salvation and redemption and reconciliation. That makes him the Lord of the church, the head of the church, the top of his people, the source of his people. We've talked about Jesus over the last several weeks being the God-man. Colossians says twice that the fullness of deity, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus. He is perfectly and completely God. He is perfectly and completely human. He is the God-man. He is supreme over all. That sounds great in the abstract, and up to this point in the book of Colossians, we've talked about that rather abstractly, Jesus being supreme. Jesus being supreme sounds great when you need something in your life and you say, hey, I know the guy who's first place and I can go to him and ask him for help. I just want you to start off with me admitting, recognizing, understanding that that idea that Jesus is supreme hits home a little bit differently when Jesus starts to tell you what to do with your life. It's a different idea. In the abstract, Jesus is great, Jesus is better, there's nothing better than Jesus, absolutely. But in this part of the book of Colossians, there's a shift and Jesus begins to, to say to his people through Paul, this is what I want you to do with your life. This is how I want you to live your life. And that's an entirely different idea than affirming the supremacy of Jesus in the abstract. So in Colossians 3 and 4, the back half of this book, uh, you see a pattern that you see in several of Paul's letters where he begins with doctrine and theology and then he shifts and he begins to talk about real life application. That shift in Colossians takes place in Colossians 3, starting in verse 1 to verse 4. We talked about this passage last week. The first thing that Paul says when he begins to apply the supremacy of Jesus to our lives is that we as Christian people are to set our minds on things above, meaning not only does God want you to do certain things with your life and in your life, but he actually cares first and foremost about your thought life. What takes place in your mind? What takes place in your heart? The supremacy of Jesus extends even that far to the things that you think and the things that you set your mind on and the things that you seek with your heart. Now, 
our passage this morning, we've come to Colossians 3, verse 5. And this passage really runs from verse 5 all the way down to verse 17. It's one big unit of thought, and we're going to break it up over two different Sundays. The first part we're going to look at this morning is Colossians 3, 5 to 11. The second part is verse 12 down to verse 17. And Paul is really describing two sides of the Christian life, two sides of one coin, you might say. And that brings us to the big idea. It's the big idea this week and next week. Following Jesus involves putting off sin and putting on obedience. There's a putting off aspect to being a Christian, and there's a putting on aspect to being a Christian. This morning, our emphasis in the first section is on this putting off, and next week, our emphasis will be on the putting on. But if you have your copy of the scriptures open, before we even read the passage, I just want you to see three phrases that Paul uses to describe the exact same thing. And you can see them in your Bible, in the text. You can also see them uh, up on the screen. Here we go. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Verse 8, you must now put all of these things away. And verse 9, you have to put off the old self. Put something to death, put something away, put something off. That's three ways of saying the exact same thing. Paul's using those phrases interchangeably. He's just coming at the same idea from three different angles to say, look, there is this negative aspect of the Christian life where we are done with old ways. And that's the emphasis of what we're looking at this morning. Look with me, if you will, Colossians 3, verse 5 to 11. We'll read the passage and then we'll pray together. Paul says this, Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come to your word in the book of Colossians and we pray that you would make us people who submit our thinking, our minds, our hearts, our seeking to the authority of your word. We pray that we would be shaped by what Paul is calling your people to in this passage and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week was a great week. The Dallas Cowboys had a tremendous victory over the Atlanta Falcons. It was a great, great win. It was a great story. Dak was back and he played good. And if you're a Cowboys fan, it was a, a good Sunday. It wasn't, in my opinion, as great as that win was, it wasn't the most interesting thing that happened in the NFL last week. Now, I'm not a huge Cam Newton fan, but in my opinion, the most interesting thing that happened in the NFL last week 
was the return of a quarterback, a player named Cam Newton. Now, some of you know who Cam Newton is. Some of you have no idea who Cam Newton is. So let me just give you the basic rundown on this guy. Out of high school, he was recruited and he played college football at Auburn. In 2010, he led the Auburn Tigers to a national championship and he won the Heisman Trophy. He was the best player in college football that year. He was drafted in 2011 by the Carolina Panthers and they drafted him to play quarterback for their team. He played quarterback from the Panthers for 2011 to 2019 and then they released him. They thought he's a little bit old, he's a little bit beat up, he can't play like he used to play, so they released him. And for a little while, he played for nobody. But then, in 2020, he was picked up by the New England Patriots, the evil empire. Everybody says, boo, hiss, boo, we don't like the Patriots. So he played a year for the Patriots, and he had a pretty good year. But then the Patriots said, ah, there's a reason they cut you uh, in Carolina. We don't want you anymore. They let go of him. And he basically went home. He wasn't ready to go home. He wanted to play, but nobody wanted him on their team until the middle of this season, the Carolina Panthers found themselves in need of a quarterback and they reached out to their old draft pick from 2011 and they said, hey, why don't you come back and play quarterback for us? Now that's quite a full circle story. He came back last week, they played the NFC leading Arizona Cardinals and they won, the Panthers beat the Cardinals and it was sort of this great feel good story of a guy who has come full circle and he came back for a moment of redemption. Now what I want you to think about is the journey, the career journey of any sports player, but we're just going to take Cam Newton as an example. When he left high school and he went to Auburn, he put off his high school jersey and he put on the Auburn Tigers uniform and he wore it proudly. He was a tiger. He played for Auburn. He wasn't in high school anymore. He put that away and now he was a college player and a great college player. When he was drafted in the NFL, he put away his college uniform and he put on the jersey of the Carolina Panthers. And he wore it for several years until they cut him and then he took it off and then the Patriots signed him. And all of a sudden he said, well, I'm not a Panther anymore, I'm a Patriot. We can boo and hiss all we want, but if they paid you millions of dollars to play quarterback for New England Patriots, you'd put that jersey on too and you'd say, I'm a Patriot, I've always been a Patriot fan. I'm done with the Panthers. I like the Patriots. This is who I am. But then when they cut him, he put street clothes on until about halfway through this season when he put back on his Panthers jersey. Now, that idea of putting off and putting on gets dramatized every step along the way when it comes to big major sports, especially sports like football. So when a great high school player signs to play college football on signing day, the local media show up and sometimes the big media show up and they have a table and usually they try to build some sort of tension. Is he gonna sign with Alabama? Is he gonna sign with Auburn? And then he, he puts on the hat or the jersey of the team that he intends to sign with. This same drama plays out on draft day when college players are drafted into the NFL. They wear a nice fancy suit or maybe you think it's not such a nice suit but it's very fancy and they go up on stage when they call their name and they give them a, a ball cap and they put the cap on of the team that they're gonna play for. And then even mid-season, if there's a trade or a re-signing, someone will stand at a podium and give a press conference and they'll put on the new jersey 
And it's sort of a symbolic putting away of the old jersey. Now, Paul did not know Cam Newton. He knew nothing about the NFL. He knew nothing about the Heisman Trophy or jerseys or any of that stuff. But what Paul is literally talking about in this passage is taking off one set of clothes and putting on a new set of clothes. That's literally the language that he's using. And what he's saying is Christian people are people who have put off an old way of living and they have put on a new way of living. It would be crazy for an NFL quarterback, I'm not talking about during the week on their spare time, but I'm talking about on game day. It would be crazy for an NFL quarterback to run out on the field and to wear their high school jersey. Everyone would say, you don't play high school football anymore. You've put that off. You're with us now, and you wear our jersey now. That's the idea that Paul's talking about. When you become a follower of Jesus, there is a putting off, a putting away, a putting to death of old things, and there is an embrace of something new. There is a putting on of something new. Now, I just want to make one point before we begin to ask questions about this passage. When Paul talks about salvation, or he talks about conversion in those terms, putting off and putting on, that's categorically different than the way so many people in the United States of America talk about, quote, getting saved. Have you been saved? Well, I got saved at this event. Well, I got saved when I was this old. And we talk about getting saved. Usually, in the United States of America, we talk about getting saved as a decision that we made. And it's true. When you become a follower of Jesus, there is a decision involved. You need to hear the good news of the gospel. You need to make the decision to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus. But what Paul is talking about here in terms of Christian conversion is so much more involved than just a decision. Paul is saying, when you decide to follow Jesus and to trust in Jesus, that decision means that you are putting something off, putting something away, putting something to death, and you are embracing something new. You are putting on something new. Now let's try to make sense of this passage with a few questions. Question one, what kind of sins does Paul want us to put away? There is all kinds of scholarly debate about the 11 sins listed here, about how you should group them and think about them. I think the best way to think about this catalog of sins that Paul lists here is in four categories. And I just put them on your handout and I put them up here on the screen. The first category is all sins involving sexual immorality. And that first term that Paul uses, sexual immorality, is just the big vague, broad, catch-all term for any type of sexual sin. So he talks about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. All of that in the world of sin that we, we would consider sexual sin. The second category is a category of one. He talks about covetousness, and he says covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness essentially is the love of money, the love of mammon, the love of possessions. If you want to trace this back up to the passage we looked at last week, 
where Paul says, seek the things above, set your minds on things above. Covetousness is a mind that is set on money. It's a heart that is set on money. It's a heart that is committed to worshiping money as if it were the most important thing, more important than God. So that's the second category. The third category, anger, wrath, and malice. Sins that impact our relationships with other people. Things that we feel in our heart that then spill out in our words and the things that we post on social media and the actions that we take or we don't take to other people, anger, wrath, and malice. The last category is the tongue. It's the tongue, slander, obscene talk, and lying, sins of the tongue. Now, those are the sins. Let me just make a couple of observations about those four sins and I think the way that we ought to categorize those sins. Number one, when you look at that list, those 11, it is really, really obvious that God cares what you do and he cares what you say and he cares what you think, and he cares how you feel. If in your fight, if you're a Christian, and in your fight against sin, you just try to stop doing bad things, you will never make any progress. Because the battle against sin is a battle that begins in the heart, and it's a battle that begins in the mind. God does care about what you do or don't do, what you say or don't say, but he also cares about what you feel and what you think. Here's a second observation. Those 11 sins are representative, not comprehensive. Meaning, they represent the kinds of things that we put off. That's not the only 11 sins that you need to be mindful of. It is not a comprehensive list, it's a representative list. Thirdly, when you look at that list, can we just be honest and admit that human beings have changed not one bit in 2,000 years? I mean, if you're gonna come up with 11 to say, hey, put these things off in Odessa, Texas in 2021, that's a pretty good list. We're the same people we've always been. There's been technological changes. There's been changes in governments and empires and Caesars and rulers. There's been change in all sorts of things over the last 2,000 years. What hasn't changed is the sinfulness of human beings. It's the same. Lastly, without going down this rabbit trail really at all, I just want you to look at that list of 11 and understand that the internet and social media, they do not cause these 11 because they all existed in Colossae with no internet and no social media. But I do want you to acknowledge that the internet and social media serve as gasoline on the fire of our sin many, many, many times. They make all of these things worse. So those are the sins that Paul is telling us to put away. Question number two, question two. Why does Paul believe that we can put sin to death? The answer is, We've died to self and we've died to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, I just want you to think about the audacity of Paul thinking that we could do this. 2,000 years have passed and we're still struggling with these 11 sins and our actions and our words and our thoughts and our feelings. What confidence should we have that 
as Christian people, we will have any ability to put any of these things away, to put them to death, to put them off. And the answer is found in what Paul talks about, not just in Colossians 3, but in seeing the connection back to Colossians 2. Look at Colossians 2.20. In Colossians 2.20, Paul says, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. You died to the power and the influence of the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When you were united to Christ, the power of those spiritual beings in your life was removed. He's saying that has happened. You have died. Look at chapter three, verse three, which we looked at last week. You have died. We talked about this last week. This dying is a dying to self and a dying to the power of sin. Paul says you can put these things away because the spiritual forces of evil that used to have control over you, you're dead to them. They're dead to you. And you have died to self. These are, and this is where we need to go back to your sixth grade English teacher. These are indicative statements of fact. Indicative statements of fact. What Paul is saying is these things have happened. Fact. Jesus died for your sins. And in putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have died to these powers and you have died to self. These deaths have happened. It's an indicative fact. It's something that has already happened in your life. And before Paul begins to tell us what to do, he lays a foundation of what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. The indicative of the gospel, the statement of fact of what has happened comes before, here we're going back to sixth grade grammar, the imperative. Indicative first, then the imperative. The indicative first, Christ died for sinners. In trusting in him, you experienced the death to these powers and to sin and to self. That's a statement of what has happened in the life of a Christian. Then we move to the imperative. And the imperative is, now you've got to put these things away. Now you've got to put these things off. Now listen, if you skip the indicative of what Christ has done and you open your Bible or in your spirituality, you just jump right to the imperative and you read Colossians 3 and you say, huh, sounds like I need to put these things off and put these things on in order for God to love me then you've missed the whole thing. God loved you when you were a sinner. And he sent his son to die on the cross in your place. He experienced a death so that when you trust in him, you would experience a death, a death to these powers and a death to self and to sin. And that indicative statement of what God has done for you in Christ has to come first. If you lead off with the imperative, saying, well, Paul says I gotta do this. I have to do that. I gotta put this stuff off and I gotta put this stuff on. You will end up a legalist. You'll end up a Pharisee. You will end up miserable in your life and you will end up a miserable failure. Because left to ourselves, 
we're that list of 11 that we put on the screen a moment ago. We don't have any goodness in us, any ability in ourselves apart from God's grace to put off sin and to put on obedience. You have got to get this square. Now listen, there's a tension that a lot of people don't like. There was people in Paul's day that didn't like the tension between the indicative and the imperative. And there's people today, they don't like this tension between the indicative and the imperative. Some people skip right over the indicative of what God has done for us in Christ. And they jump right to the imperative and they say, you gotta be a good person, you gotta stop doing this, you gotta start doing that, and if you do it good enough, God will love you. It's not how it works. Some people make the opposite mistake. They look at the indicative statements of the gospel and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God loved me and Christ died for me while I was a sinner? He loved me when I was a sinner. And then they want nothing to do with the imperatives because they say, well, if God loved me when, when I was a sinner, I must be worth so much and God just must, must be smitten with me the way that I am. And I don't really need to change. I don't really need to grow. I don't really need to be obedient because God just loved me freely. You gotta hold the tension of both of these tenses, verb tenses together. You've got to start with the indicative of what Christ has done for his people and what he's done in the hearts and the lives of his people. And then you've got to hear these imperative statements. Put these things off and put these things on. So that's why Paul has confidence. It's not because we can be good enough to obey the imperatives, but it's because what Christ has already done in the lives of his people. Question number three, why does Paul want us to put sin away? Very simple answer, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Look what Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 6. Sandwiched right in between the first half of the list of sins and the second half of the list of sins, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is probably something we don't talk enough about in the year 2021. And maybe there was a time previously in our history where we talked about it too much and we just tried to scare people into making a decision for Jesus with God's wrath and his anger. But if we've made any mistake today, we've gone in the opposite direction and we don't talk about it enough. The Bible says that God is holy and the Bible says that we are sinful people. And when sinful people stand before a holy God, it puts you in a terrible position. It puts you under his wrath, his hot, righteous anger towards sin. Left to ourselves, we deserve God's wrath. Left to ourselves, we are children of wrath. And Paul just wants to be honest, and he's warning the church in Colossae, he's warning the church in Odessa, look, all these things that the Christian is called to put off, on account of those things, the wrath of God is coming. In my personal Bible reading this week, I'm using a Bible reading plan, I went through the Old Testament book of Amos and the New Testament book of Hebrews. Listen to how the book of Amos begins. Amos 1-2, the Lord roars from Zion. And if you keep reading in Amos 1 and 2, he is roaring because he is angry with sin. He calls out the sin of all the nations surrounding 
Israel and Jerusalem. Then he talks about Judah. Then he talks about Israel. And he says, look, all of you people chasing sin, God is roaring in wrath in your direction. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Tell us the good stuff you got to in the, in the New Testament, the loving, kind stuff. Well, this is what I got to in the New Testament, Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The God of the Old Testament is a God of the New Testament. He's the same God. And Paul is speaking to people who would persist in sin unrepentantly. And he says, on these sorts of things and people who pursue these sorts of things, the wrath of God is coming. Some of you this morning sit under that wrath. You're under God's wrath right now. You have never confessed your sin to Almighty God. You've never agreed with him about how horrific your sin is. You've never looked to Jesus for salvation and forgiveness. And you right now are under God's wrath. And what we, the people of God, would have you to know is there is a way of escape and his name is Jesus. He died on a cross in your place and he took God's wrath that should have fallen on you. He died as a substitute to satisfy the hot, righteous anger of God towards sinners. And you can be moved from being a child of wrath to a child of God when you agree with God about your sin and you put your faith in the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul want us to put sin away? The wrath of God is coming. Last question, number four. What does Paul want us to put on? We're gonna really expand this next week. This morning I give you the classic Sunday school answer. Jesus. He wants us to put on Jesus. Look at Colossians chapter three, verse 10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In the context of Colossians, who is the creator? It's Jesus. He's the Lord of creation. He's the one who spoke everything into existence at the beginning and who upholds it by his powerful word. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you begin a process of becoming like the creator, being more like Jesus, sounding more like Jesus, thinking more like Jesus. It's a process where over and over and over again, God is at work in your life to make you more like his son. God's plan for Christian people is not just that they would die someday and get to go to heaven. God's plan for Christian people is that even now they would begin to look like the Lord Jesus Christ and that when they die, they would be with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we begin this process of being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. Verse 11, our identity changes. We live in a society obsessed with identity. And the Bible has something to say about that. The Bible says, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no longer Greek, 
nor Jew. Your ethnicity matters nothing. Here, there is not circumcised or uncircumcised. Your religious background matters nothing when you're united to Jesus. Verse 11, here there is neither slave nor free. Your socioeconomic status matters nothing when you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, here there is neither barbarian nor Scythian. The barbarians came from one part of the Roman Empire. The Scythians came from the northern part of the Roman Empire. Paul's saying, I don't care where your hometown is. I don't care what what reaches of the empire you come from. It really doesn't matter. I don't care what's stamped on your birth certificate or your passport. Those things are irrelevant to your identity when you're united to Jesus. There is not slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, circumcised, uncircumcised, Greek, Jew, but Christ is in all and Christ is all. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are united to him by faith. It's the same idea that you see in a wedding ceremony when a husband and a wife walk into a wedding ceremony two and they walk out one. The two become one. God patterned that after your relationship, the relationship of the church with Jesus where we are united to him. And when God looks at us, he no longer sees us as sinful people, but he sees us through the lens of his son. All of that is possible because of what Christ has done for his people on the cross. And that's what we celebrate this morning when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We are remembering the body of Christ broken for our sins. And we're remembering the blood of Christ shed to redeem us from our sins. And we are giving thanks that Christ has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. And that God has started a work in our lives whereby we turn from sin and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are united to him by faith. Our identity is tied up in who he is, in his righteousness, in his relationship with the Father. So this morning, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, We ask that you not take the elements this morning as we take uh, the bread and the cup. We ask that you maybe spend a few minutes thinking about what it would look like for you to enter into a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you have turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation, if you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized as a picture of the beginning of your life as a Christ follower, then we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. What we're gonna do is I'm gonna give you just a couple of minutes to pray. And individually, I'm just gonna encourage you to pray and to give thanks for what God has done for us through his son in providing us life and uniting us to Jesus by virtue of our faith in him and welcoming us into his family. So you take a moment to pray and then here in just a minute, I will close us in prayer and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.